amen to the truths of those songs. If you have your Bibles today, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 7. But before we go to Matthew chapter 7, I want to read a few verses for us from Matthew chapters 5 to remind us of the Beatitudes, the characteristics of God's people, which we see explained in Jesus' opening message here on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 2, we'll read through verse 10. The Holy Scriptures read, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I can't advance here. There we go. Is it not working? No. Okay. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You advance it for me, Jacob, if you would. All right, and then our text this morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take care of the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin today? Father, we come before you today and we ask that you would be our teacher. Father, this text is one we've looked at before, but it's one that we need. And so, Father, we ask that through the power of your spirit, through the foolishness of preaching, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted. This is a text that hurts, and we ask that it would, not to wound for the sake of wounding, but the sake of wounding so that we might be healed. So allow it to cut where it needs to cut. Help this text to function, not as a window by which we judge others, but by a mirror in which we judge ourselves, for that is the purpose of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you could advance the slide one, Jacob. Oh, back up. Never mind. All right. Technology's sure fun when it doesn't work, isn't it? They said that the king was so full of sorrow that he never smiled again. It's an old famous Welsh fable that I heard a while back, about a year and a half ago now, from a preacher I follow quite regularly. And he told of a fable about Welland the Great, who was the Prince of Wales during the 13th century. In this story, Welland, he's given a dog named Dellert, and he's given this dog from King John of England, And it's a dog that was quite valuable. It was a dog that was known for his loyalty and protective nature. And so the prince 
puts this dog, this loyal and protective dog, in charge of guarding one of his most prized possessions, which was the room in which his new baby boy slipped. And so the guard dog here went to work doing what guard dogs do, which is guarding the room in which the baby slept. And the guard dog did this quite well. For every time the king would return to his son's room, the dog was never lying asleep off in the corner. No, the dog was alert and on guard protecting his son, which gained the dog the nickname, the faithful hound. But then on one particular day, when the king returned from a hunting trip, he went to see his baby boy. And when he did, he discovered something that struck fear into the heart of his soul. For not only was the cradle overturned with the bedding strewn all over the floor, but the ground was covered in blood with the child nowhere to be found. And then the king saw something that he could never believe. For there stood the dog Dellert with his mouth covered in blood. For a moment, he just stood there, bewildered, wondering at what he saw. But then before he even realized it, the rage came over him and he pulled out his sword, plunged it deeply into the dog's heart, killing it instantly. And as the dog gave out its final whelp, the king heard another cry from the corner of the room, for it was the cry of his baby boy. Rushing over to his child, he found his son unharmed, lying next to the body of a dead wolf. And that's when the king realized that the blood on the dog was not the blood of his son. It was the blood of the wolf whom the dog had killed. For the dog had not harmed the child, but actually protected and saved him. And upon realizing this, the king was so full of sorrow and regret that he never smiled again. Church, I ask you this morning, have you ever misjudged a situation? How about all the time? Have you ever been absolutely so certain of something only later to discover, heaven forbid, you were wrong about some of the details that drastically changed the outcome of that event? You discovered you were a little bit too bit quick on pulling the trigger, a little too fast to draw conclusions, a little too quick to think you knew the whole story, and by the time you came to realize it, it was too late. If you had already drawn your proverbial sword and struck the person down in judgment. You know, in response to this kind of common human behavior, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, he says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In this passage, Jesus is warning us of the dangers of wrongful judgment. And make no mistake, there are dangers, very serious ones that come with it. He's warning us then not to take out our swords and hastily start swinging away as judge, jury, and executioner, because if we do swing the sword of judgment at others, not only is it going to cause great harm, but when it comes to swinging this sword of judgment, as scripture says, he who lives by the sword of judgment dies by the sword of judgment. And as Christians who have been spared by the sword of God's judgment, how dare we pick it up and begin swinging at those we judge worthy of said sword. If you advance it to our outline here, the danger of this is not only 
when we pick up the sword and swing it about, not only is it dangerous, not only is it hypocritical, but finally it's unhelpful. Now, I'm sure if you've already realized here, maybe you haven't, but we are not in Matthew chapter 24 this morning. This is a totally different chapter. It's one that we looked at actually about a year and a half ago, because we've been in Matthew for quite some time now. And so the question is, why are we returning to this passage? Well, we are returning to this passage this morning, not because I lost track of time and didn't get my study in of Matthew chapter 24, but because I am convinced that as a collective church body, this is a truth we have not gotten well. This is a truth we desperately need to get very, very well. We need it so resounding in our souls that this is instinct for us, that it is our first nature to act in how Jesus tells us to act. And so this morning, we're going to do something we haven't done before, which is to pause our sermon series in order to have a family talk based upon Jesus's words we find here in Matthew chapter 7. For these past three years, I have been given the immense and wonderful privilege of serving as your pastor. And I really do mean that. Because even though there are hardships, it is a joy and it is a privilege. And on one hand, I really do honestly believe that we have something special and unique here as a church. However, the compliments always come before the, the buts, right? But I must say, we have a very serious, collective, systemic problem that must be treated if we are going to be a church that accomplishes much for the kingdom. Because if we do not get this issue underhand, not only will we be a largely useless church and our works will burn up, but this issue is so serious, it actually threatens the very existence of us being a church family. And the dangerous issue I'm talking about is the issue of judging others. As a pastor, it's your job to step into messy situations on a weekly, sometimes daily basis, and do your best to speak the healing truths that are found in God's words into those difficult situations. And after three years, if I had to pick one thing that is the most common issue that causes hurt to this local body here in Eagles, at Eagles Nest in the Breezy Point area, it is the issue of judging wrongly. A year and a half ago, I warned us about this when I said that when it comes to issues that will quickly rip a church, a church apart faster than anything, I mentioned judging is, takes the cake when it comes to this. And I can tell you now, a year and a half later, the truth of that matter is much more serious and more true than I even realized back then. And so this morning, we collectively, and I'm emphasizing the word collectively here for a point. I keep saying it because this is a collective problem that we need to address. All right? And so this morning, we are collectively, underline the word, as a church, need to take Jesus's words very seriously here. Which means, on one hand, if you think you've got a problem here with this, yes, embrace the conviction that Jesus' words are meant to give you. But on the other hand, recognize this morning's sermon is not about a bad conversation I had this week, and I just got to lay into that person. All right, That's called sniping, and it's an abuse of the pulpit. Okay, That's not what we're doing. Because again, what's the word we keep using? It's a collective issue that we as a church need to work on as a family. It's not just one or two people. 
It's not even just five or 10 people. This is a collective problem that keeps showing its ugly head in the life of our church. Now, one of the gifts God, I believe God has given me is the gift of forgetting people's faults quickly. I'm very thankful for that because there's many times where one of you will come to me and you'll bring up a past conflict, an issue or something that happened. And I'm like, snap, I totally forgot about that. And that's, that's, a, that's something I'm thankful for, that God has given me that ability to quickly forget things. But I got to tell you, as I prepared this message, I believe it was of the Lord, you know, just, or just thinking through, I don't know what it was, but I was reminded of so many numerous difficult situations that have occurred over these past three years, not just with me, but with others that are having conflict, that are having friction in this body, and they all largely result from the sin of judging others. So on one hand, do not take this personally. This is a collective conversation. But on the other hand, I want you to take this personally, collectively, right? I want you to use this text not as a window to look through and be like, man, look at all those judgy people. Don't do that. I want you to use it as a mirror to examine your own wicked heart. Because newsflash, we all have wicked hearts. Even the redeemed of God, we still wrestle with this wicked heart that drives us to judge others. Now, don't get judgmental about judgmental people, all right? Don't do that. Stop it. So disclaimer given, this is not sniping. This is a collective issue that I've been praying about for roughly six months now of thinking of going back and readdressing as a church family. So that's why we're doing this this morning. Why is it wrong? Why is it that wrongful judgment is so dangerous for a church? Why? I mean, sin is bad. All sin is equally condemning, but not all sin is equally dangerous and does not come with the same negative results as other sins, okay? If you hate somebody in your heart for an afternoon, that's not the same thing as going to their house and murdering them in terms of the consequences, okay? Before God, you're still guilty of murder, but it's not the same outcome. There's a lot of reasons then why wrongful judgment is such a dangerous thing for a church. But one of the reasons comes from the expression we've all heard, which is don't judge a book by what? It's cover. That's exactly what judging is, at least in part. It's looking at one thing about a person and saying, you know what, I'm condemning you. That's who your identity is. And you pull out your sword and before they even give a rebuttal, you slash into them. That's what judging is. Oh, look how they dress. Can you believe she wears that? She obviously wants guys looking at her. Look at the car they drive. I would never spend that kind of money on such a frivolous car. I would, I'd give it to the poor. Yeah, right. All right. Look, if you're not giving money to the poor right now, you're not going to do it when you get more money to buy a car. Okay. It's just not how that works. There they are with that job that they don't have anymore. They lost it. Man, they must just not be a very good worker. They're probably just a lazy person. You know what the Bible says about lazy people, right? They shouldn't even eat. Did you hear they like that one pastor? Are you serious? They're probably not even saved. I kind of didn't think it in the first place, but this proves it. No questions. Or, everyone heard this one before? Did you see their kid today at church? Let me tell you, if I was, when I'm a parent someday, I will never raise my kid like that. So help me God. I, not in a million years, buddy. I would do that. Until you have kids, be quiet. All right? Them's the rules. Until you have kids, shh, 
Again, criticism's helpful, okay? We're not saying it's wrong to look at biblical principles and apply them, but here's the thing. With all of these examples, we are judging a book by its cover, which is not, in, which is not just incredibly arrogant, it's incredibly foolish. In all this, we are drawing conclusions that God tells us only he is allowed to draw. And so when we do judge in this way that Jesus warns us not to do, we're essentially saying, you know what, God, you're not doing such a good job of this whole being the judge of the universe. Why don't you move over off the throne? I'll take it for a while. I'll take it from here. I got this. Now, as we said, not only is that incredibly arrogant, but it's foolish. And we must not do this for how dangerous it is. And so if we're going to avoid doing this, we have to recognize something that we probably all should just get tattoos of on our forehead right now, okay? I'm speaking from my own experience, okay? And it's this, your perception isn't an indicator of reality. We all think our perceptions, like we all like, oh man, I got the gift of discernment. Watch out. I can tell you exactly what's going on without even hearing much. No, you can't. We all need to recognize our perception is not reality. Sometimes it's just our perception. And a lot of us here wear glasses, right? But what we don't recognize is how much we need spiritual glasses because we don't even come close to 2020 vision on this stuff. Have you ever heard one side of the story and then drew a drastically different conclusion once you heard a few other details that kind of change things? All the time, all the time. Proverbs eighteen seventeen says this. I can't get it to come up, but here's what it says. The first to speak in court sounds right. Till what? Till the rebuttal comes. Until the cross-examination is given. It seems right with the first little bit of facts we hear, but when we hear the rest of the tale, we realize that's not the whole story. And we've all done this. But, and here's the problem, sometimes by the time that cross-examination comes about, what have we already done? Swords out, and we've hacked away. This happens all the time. And even though this hacking away has only been done in our heart and head and hasn't often manifested into physically or verbally, you know, going after that person, the damage is already done because our heart is now convinced of that person's condemned nature, regardless of the new facts that have been introduced to our minds. See how that works? We've believed the narrative. We've swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. And ain't no facts in the world going to change that. And even if we verbally say that it's changed that, the damage has already been done in our hearts. It's affected our attitude towards that person. So if we're going to avoid the dangers of wrongful judgment, we got to learn, church, to train ourselves to not jump to premature conclusions. We have to learn to not solely listen to that first voice that speaks in court. And who is that voice that we usually hear making these premature judgments? It's our own. It's our own hearts that tell us this. We've used this illustration before. But how this often sometimes look is you walk into church and you sometimes walk by somebody and you say, hi, good morning. And what do they say? Nothing, right? And within five seconds, your heart has constructed an entire narrative story based upon that one interaction of what happened. And you've concluded, you've judged. You know why they did that? Because they're rude. They're stuck up. 
They don't even like you, and you knew it all along. And this proves it. And then all of a sudden, you know what happens? When you've bought this narrative conclusion, you start remembering all the little times, all the little pieces, all the evidences that fit with this uncharitable conclusion. Like that one time where you waved to them and they didn't come sit by you at church or at the fellowship meal. Or how they didn't send you a Christmas card. Or, by the, I don't do Christmas cards, so if you get one, you just be thankful, okay? Or, <laughs> Becky does them, I think. Now, or the time you walked by and they laughed with all those other people and you just know because they glanced at you right after they did that they were talking about you and they were laughing about you. Anybody done this before? How about all of us? Two hands right up in the air. Okay, and here's the thing, though. That whole time, while you were busy in your little old make-believe world, you never stopped to think of the facts that, A, they never heard you say hi in the first place. And two, the only reason you didn't get a Christmas card was because their kid accidentally spilt their juice all over the card that had your name on it. And in the midst of the chaos of cleaning up crazy messes, parents know what I'm talking about, yours got thrown out and they forgot to replace it. And see, they, were, they weren't actually laughing about something about you. They were actually laughing about something they recently did that was silly at work. And they just happened to catch your eye right as they were having this conversation at their own expense, actually. But none of that matters because your heart has already told you everything you need to know about that person. Because, man, you've got the spiritual gift of discernment. Right? Watch out, facts. You know, okay? And what you know is they're a bad person. And you know this because you have an all-knowing, omniscient heart. The first to speak in court sounds right until the cross-examination begins. Can I be a little bit blunt here? Like, what do you mean? You already have been. Well, buckle up. Your heart is going to tell you things that are not true all the time. It's going to tell you lies. And when it does, you have to learn to shut it down. You have to learn to not listen to it. We have to regularly tell it to shut its arrogant lying mouth because our heart is a liar. And if we want to get better at this, we have to understand that our perception is not often the reality. Our heart is going to want us to believe the uncharitable narrative. And why? Because it's programmed to. Ever since the fall... That's what we want. That's the pulse of our heart. But the reality is, this is just our perception, and it's usually wrong. And if you think the examples I gave a moment ago are exaggeration, I can tell you, you can ask any pastor who's been in ministry, they're not. Look at Pastor Bob, he'll nod. They are not exaggerations. If anything, they're under-exaggerations to the kinds of serious false judgments that often damage and divide a church body. Maybe someday I'll write a book about it with all of the wild examples. Maybe not. But here's what Jeremiah 17.9 says about this. This is why we do this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And I might add, who can trust it? None of us can trust it. The truth is we all make assumptions. And those assumptions are often, if not usually just flat out, or not, they're usually flat out wrong, and they get us into serious relational trouble. So we have to train ourselves to not listen to the first voice we hear. We got to go for the cross-examination. 
go for the rebuttal. Now, sometimes the first voice we hear is certainly other people. That's called slander. That's called gossip, and it's sin, okay? And we certainly need to shut that down. It takes two to gossip. That's how that sin works. And I, and I get, like, there's a lot of times where, like, you don't realize it's gossip until you're 70% into that conversation. But when you're 70% in and you realize it, you stop it dead in its tracks and you offer a loving, gracious rebuke. But often is the times the slanderous voice we are hearing is actually the voice of our own hearts. And so, like God told Cain, sin is at our doorstep and we must master it. The first to speak in court sounds right until the rebuttal comes. If we're going to see victory in this as individuals and collectively as a church, we must learn to cross-examine our own hearts. How? By not only refusing to listen to its uncharitable perspective, but by speaking a charitable perspective to it. Another thing we can do is ask others to help us in this area when we are failing. Spouses, friends, other family members in your local family or even in your church family. This is something I have to do regularly as a pastor, and Becky's pretty good at it. Sometimes I will say, man, do you see this? And I'll have an uncharitable conclusion, right? I do this too. I'm preaching at myself. And she's like, no, I don't think so. Did, did you actually realize? And then she introduces some new piece of information I didn't know, and I'm like, oh, never mind. <laughs> you know? We have to have this in our relationships. Now, 1 Corinthians 13, it's often called the love chapter of the Bible, and we love to read it at weddings, but it applies to way more than weddings, okay? And in here, 1 Corinthians 13, here's what the Apostle Paul writes. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and to understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm a zero, I'm nothing. Okay, let's keep going. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, here's the part I want to focus on. Verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant nor rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. See that bitter there. It is not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things and endures all things. What Paul is saying here is that love gives the benefit of the doubt always, always. And why? Lots of reasons. The gospel being for, being the first reason. But silently, do you want that? Of course you do. Love does not impatiently jump to conclusions. It doesn't arrogantly insist that its perspective is the God-omniscient, all-knowing perspective. It doesn't enjoy looking and headhunting for wrongdoings in others by always taking the negative perspective as the only possible perspective. Actually, love is biased towards the positive, charitable perspective. It doesn't just look for a potential positive alternative explanation, love fights for it. It goes to war against the lying heart that is within each of us and says, not on my watch, heart, shut your mouth. I'm believing the positive thing. It says to the heart, your negative perspective cannot possibly be the right one. I don't believe it. And I'm going to actively look and pursue the charitable narrative. And love says this because love genuinely wants the good explanation to be true because they love the person. 
And, you know, there are areas where we already do this, right? Like my parents, their dog Yoshi, bless his heart, he's, he's no longer with us. But this is, is the funniest thing ever, okay? We'd go over to my parents' house, and Yoshi would do something naughty, all right? And I'd say, oh, he never does that. I'm like, except for the last 40 times I was here, right? You know, like, like he's just the perfect dog. I'm like, eh, it doesn't seem so perfect when we're over. You know, he's begging for food. He's going on the floor. You know, and he was a pretty good dog. Okay, I'm not trying to badmouth Yoshi, okay? But the point was, why were my parents that way about Yoshi? Because it's their dog, right? Like, don't you say nothing about my dog, right? Like, we love our dog. And yes, the dog had problems. But you know what I mean? It was a charitable perspective towards little old Yoshi. Right? Same thing happens with family members, right? Like, you ever see a brand new baby and you're like, eh, it's not the cutest baby. For the record, Ashley and Travis, your baby is absolutely adorable. And I really do mean that. But, right? Like, not all babies are adorable. Okay? Some of them look like old men, okay? But there's not a parent in the world who's like, I got an ugly baby. I can't wait for them to grow up and not be so ugly. You think they're adorable. And even when they get older and they've got problems, right? You're never like, you know what? I'm sick of you. I'm not talking to you for two years. You're like, go to your room, four-year-old. I'm done with you. We don't do that. Why? Because we love them. We have an attitude of charity. Same thing happens with sports teams. I mean, my brother, bless his heart, he's a Dolphins fan, and it's just not happening. It's just not going to happen, all right? Same thing with the Vikings. Give it up, okay? But you still remain fans of the team, Do you get the idea here? This is the thing Paul's talking about, how Christians need to be towards one another. You're not just fans. You're super fans of each other, right? You don't care how bad the quarterback did in that game. Like, your team's going to the Super Bowl, okay? That is the perspective we have to have and develop towards each other. But the reality is, when it comes to those outside of our tribe, and make no mistake, just because we go to church together doesn't mean we're all in the same tribe, within our hearts at least. Uh, This does not come naturally. Not even for Christians. Not even the most maturest of Christians. This does not come naturally. Which is why you've got to go to war against this. You've got to fight for it. By fighting the warped, sin-darkened perspective of your heart, which delights in seeing gray as a little darker. It delights in seeing gray as black. You know why this is the case? I think you do, but I'm going to remind us of it anyways. Okay? One of the reasons we do this is because it makes us feel good. It it bolsters my pride. You know? I I make this joke a lot, but the reason I I, I make fun of you, I push you down, is to pull myself up, right? You know, the kind of psychobabble approach, right? But it's true. That's exactly why we do it. It bolsters our pride to push others down. And then when we do the comparison game, we're like, man, I would never raise my kids like that. You know, that sort of thing. That's how we get. We easily and quickly love to latch on to the dark narratives that our heart tells us. And if you think you're immune to this, if you think you've mastered this, you've got another problem, which is a lack of self-awareness. Because every single one of us does this. We all have this tendency. I like how C.S. Lewis said this. He, uh, he wrote about the heart's love for the darker explanation. Here's what he says. I've got two slides here. He says, suppose one reads a story of filthy atrocities in the paper. Then suppose that something turns up suggesting that the story might, might not be quite true or not quite as bad as it was first made out. Is one's first feeling, thank God, even they aren't quite so bad as that? Or is it a feeling of disappointment? and even a determination to cling to the first story for the sheer pleasure of thinking your enemies are as bad as possible. 
If it is the second, then it is, I'm afraid, the first step into the process, which if followed to the end, will make us into devils. You see, one is beginning to wish that black was a little blacker. If we give that wish its head, later on, we shall wish to see gray as black and then to see white itself as black. Finally, we shall insist on seeing everything, including God and our friends and ourselves, as bad. And we will not be able to stop doing it. We shall be fixed forever in a universe of pure hatred. Man, Lewis is brilliant. I didn't name my son after him for no reason. Lewis knows what he's talking about here. That is so true. And if we don't recognize the truth of our own heart's desire for gray being a little darker, we're not going to be able to deal with this. An attitude of charity and love is not something that comes naturally for any of us. And to make matters worse, for some of us, it comes a whole lot less naturally. But either way, no matter how unnatural it is for you, you've got to fight for an attitude of charity in your heart. You've got to go to war. You've got to do battle against it. And you have to guard yourselves from believing the perspective, which is false, that your heart desperately wants to be true. Because if we don't, we're going to cause relational fallout wherever we go, and that absolutely includes the church where you go. One of the biggest reasons it harms us, one of the biggest reasons this is so dangerous, is because this critical judgmental attitude Jesus tells us it has a boomerang effect. It really does. What am I talking about? I'm talking about what Jesus says in verse 2 of Matthew 7. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. Just let that sink in for a minute. You want to judge others with law. You know what you're asking for? Hey, judge. Hey, God, judge me by law. That sounds good. I think I'll do just fine. It's not going to happen. Jesus says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Okay, what does Jesus mean here by judging? Let's, let's deal with this first, okay? Does he mean don't ever call sin, sin? Obviously not. I mean, he's been calling people out for sin. You know, we're in Matthew 24. We've seen this a lot, lots of times. Does he mean nobody has the gift of discernment and you should never exercise discernment? Obviously not. Does he mean that you can't have opinions on anything? No, it's not what he's talking about. It's not what he's saying. On one hand, as we as we've have already discussed, we absolutely shouldn't jump to conclusions and start calling everything and anything sin without even knowing the facts of the matter. But on the other hand, Jesus is saying, do not draw conclusions about the person that condemns. Why? Who is the one who condemns? Is that me? Is that you? No, it's God. See, as a church, we can easily forget that we're not in the business of condemnation, are we? No. We're in the business of reconciliation, of reconciling sinners who are condemned apart from Christ to both God and man. So not only is it not our mission, but not only are we completely unqualified and incapable of this business of judging and condemning, but we're claiming something that only belongs to God and God alone. In James 4, verse 11 through 12, here's what it says. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, 
but you're sitting in judgment on it. But there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Similarly, in Luke chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Similarly, Romans 14, 10, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? Do you not know we will all stand before the judgment seat of God? This is serious stuff. We're not talking works-based salvation here, but make no mistake, the degree to which we do this has an indicator upon, it's a spotlight upon our own hearts and whether or not we actually understand the gospel, right? So all Christians struggle with it, but at the same time, if you have no master of this whatsoever, you need to go back to square one and say, do I actually get the gospel at all? When it comes to wrongful judgment, I like how one pastor put it when he said, wrongful judgment, hear me when I say this, please. Okay, here, this is good. He says, wrongful judgment does what? It reduces someone down to a single action. Wrongful judgment reduces someone down to a single attribute, maybe the way they look. Wrongful judgment reduces someone down to their failures and their past. Wrongful judgment reduces someone down to the issue we disagree on. And why are we not to do this? Well, for one, not only do we not want to be judged in that way, but no matter how well we know the person, we don't have all the facts. We're not starting this race, the, the, the sanctification race, following Christ. We're not starting at the same point of the track. This thing's a marathon. Some of us, because of good heredity and good upbringing, we're starting 10 miles ahead of some Christian back there who's still trying to tie their shoes and the race is already going, right? We don't have all the facts. And we're not starting from the same point. And yet, because of one encounter, one conversation, one thing they said, or one theological disagreement, that's all you need. You're set to judge that person and determine their identity and their self-worth. Because what you've done there is you've made their identity that thing. And maybe it is a failure, right? There's sinful failures. We all have. And you know what? But what we're doing is we're saying that that action is who they are. Sure, you might not say it out loud, but that's what your actions show. And as the expression goes, actions speak louder than words. You understand the huge danger here, church? When you judge someone like that, what you're really saying is, I think the law is a good idea. Let's do that. That's fair. It's only fair. We all want fair. We're Americans. We want, our, you know, we want things fair, okay? And let's just go for total fair. But you know what? That's exactly what the Pharisees wanted. And because it's because they ultimately thought that they were righteous in God's eyes. Sure, they would, I mean, they wouldn't say, they would say, yes, we do sin, okay? It's not like they would outright say, you know what? We're sinless. We're as holy as God. No, they wouldn't say that. But in their actions, in their views, in their hearts, they saw themselves as righteous, they thought that they could actually uphold God's law. But as Jesus keeps pointing out in the Sermon on the Mount, they don't even come close. Remember what Jesus told them? He told them this. Look in Matthew 5.20. I'll just put it up here. Jacob will force. Matthew 5.20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this was a mic drop moment for sure. 
right? Because these were considered the religious best of the best. And Jesus is like, yeah, you guys, you guys going to do the law thing? You got you to be better than them. And they're like, who, who, who's going to do that, right? Matthew 5, 21 through 22, here's what Jesus says about that law. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, Raka, you fool, will be liable to the hell of, to the hell of fire. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Can you say yikes? That is some high standard of living. So high that the rightful response to this is who then can be righteous? Who then can be saved? And the answer is what Jesus said in Matthew 19, verse 26, when he said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. How is it possible? Through our works? Through 90% law obedience? No. It comes entirely through Christ and Christ alone. And now you know why the thesis of the Sermon on the Mount, I believe, is verse 17 of Matthew 5, which says, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. The law is not going anywhere, he says. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So we have two options. These are it. These are the only options you get. Either you fulfill the law, or Christ does it for you in your stead. And that's the gospel. It's the gospel of grace, where sinners, such a worm as I, can stand righteously before a holy God. And not because I'm good at obeying the law. In fact, I'm awful at it. And I don't know if you ever noticed this, but just the times in your life where you start to think, man, I feel like I've been progressing in this sanctification thing. What usually happens? You get hit by a freight truck. Anybody have that experience? Yes. Especially if you've been doing the Christian walk for a while. So we can either fulfill the law ourselves or we can let Christ fulfill it for us. And here's the thing about that. That's called grace. And if we lawbreakers, whom we all are, whom I remind you, deserve judgment and justice, have received said grace, y'all think we should start treating each other in light of that marvelous, unmerited gift? Should we treat each other with the same grace that God has given us instead of judgment? How about yes? That's Jesus's point. The gospel are explicitly clear on this. The entire Bible is explicitly clear on this. Do you want to know one of the biggest indicators that you have not truly come to receive that marvelous grace? You know what it is? You don't give it to anybody else. That's yours. You're like Gollum. It's my precious. You know, nobody gets this. Lord of the Rings reference. Instead, you judge others by a standard that you have asked God to not judge you by which is not only reverting back to the law, but it's embracing blatant hypocrisy, which leads us to our second point. We must not swing the sword of judgment because it is one, dangerous, not just for others, but for ourselves, but two, it's hypocritical. Look at verses three through four with me, please. I'm going to pause before I read this. 
This is something that I get very passionate about, especially as a pastor, because I see the damage it causes. So if I sound angry, I'm not, okay? I'm burdened with the seriousness of this text. I love our church. I love you all. That's where this is coming from. Matthew 7, verses 3 through 4. Do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? Or why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? This is hilarious hyperbole, right? This is sarcasm in a good way. He's making a point. He's like, look, you're trying to get the little speck out and you got this massive log. You're bumping into everybody and everything. Not only is it dangerous for you, but it's not helping. Not even close. Jesus is pointing out the blatant hypocrisy in self-righteous judgment of one sinner over the other, which is sort of like the pot telling the kettle it's black. It's like, yeah, no, duh. It's like the, it's like the left armpit telling the other one it stinks after a long day of hard work. It's like, yep, you too, you know? Like, that's what this is. Church, this is nothing other than the sin of self-righteousness, which is no little sin, no little sin. And if you think about it, the sin of self-righteousness is the only sin that if not repented of will damn you to hell for eternity. Because if you embrace self-righteousness, what are you rejecting? Christ's imputed righteousness, which is what sinners need to be righteous before God. Don't get me wrong. As Christians, we do struggle with self-righteousness. We all do. But if in totality, ultimately, we have never come to recognize that our, absolute, that our absolute need and dependence to be righteous only comes from the grace of God. If we haven't come to realize that, we're not saved. We're not Christians. No matter how long you've gone to church, no matter how many times you've read your Bible, you're not a, you're not a Christian. Why? Because you haven't done enough of the things? No. It's because you're trusting in the things. You're not turning from the righteousness of your own and trusting in the righteousness of Christ. The truth is we are all sinners who can only be saved by the grace of God. And in Luke chapter 9, after a Samaritan village rejects Jesus, James and John, the old sons of thunder, what do they say to Jesus? What do they ask him? Say, Lord, do you want us to command down fire from heaven and destroy them? Can we do that? Sounds fun. It's like they're saying, hey, Jesus, can we wipe out the sinners? And what does Jesus say in response? He says, yeah, I don't think you want that, boys. Because that's going to include you too. Because you're sinners as well. The truth is a judgmental spirit has forgotten the gospel. Maybe it's never known it in the first place, but if it has, it, in that moment, has forgotten it. And it's forgotten that no matter how much you clean up the outside of the dish, no matter how much you whitewash the outside of the tomb, without the gospel of grace, marvelous grace, the inside is still full of dead man's bones, spiritually lifeless. And when we look at other saints as sinners who are worthy of our judgment, we not only are usurping God's throne in high-handed rebellious treason, but we've forgotten that it was the blood of Jesus alone that has washed the inside of our cups has, and has made the dead turn to life. May we never forget that even the most nominal, weak, pathetic Christian in this church, I don't know who it is, but we, there's one, God knows, okay? You know what they really are? They're not 
nominal. They're not weak. They're not pathetic. What they are is before God, holy, perfected, spotless, just as clean and righteous and holy as God's own holy beloved son. That should make you say amen, all right? I know we're not a big amen in church, but that's the point you want to do it in a sermon, okay? That is an amen moment. God makes even the most wicked and vilest of us as righteous as his son is. So why, thank you. Well, you guys did that there, but all right. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is so true though. And this is what we have to remember. Are you seeing your brothers and sisters in Christ as God sees them? Or are you viewing them by the self-righteous comparison game because you have an inflated view of your own spiritual maturity? Often the case, we do this, all of us, every single one of us, which is why this is a collective problem that we have to go to war against. And so we need to remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says this, verse 7, For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? It's divine plagiarism is what pride is. Get that? It's divine plagiarism to say, man, I'm a pretty good Christian. Can't believe these other jokers can't get up to my level. What do you have that you've not received? It's all from God. The faith that we have is even measured to us in accordance with his grace. Are you perpetually concerned about the specks you see in all of your brothers and sisters in Christ's eye? Well, you have the log of self-righteous legalism in your own. What's the antidote? It's the gospel. Let's put up the slide of Ephesians 4.32. Here's what it says. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Are there conditions attached to that? Conditions of you got to do, uh, you know, nine of the 10 commandments 70% of the time? No, no. A heart that appreciates the grace it has received will and must extend that same grace towards others, which then and only then will allow our judgments to help and not harm one another. For grace-filled judgment is absolutely necessary for this church to be a healthy and strong church, which leads us to our final point. We must not swing the sword of judgment because it is dangerous. It is hypocritical. And third, it's just not helpful. It's just not. We think we're helping, but the only thing we're helping is our own ego. Look at verses five and six. Or verse five, actually. You hypocrites, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. One of the reasons we must not hastily swing the sword of judgment is the same reason you wouldn't want your surgeon to use a massive machete instead of a scalpel when they go to operate. Maybe you do. I don't think you do, right? Like we want the scalpel. We want the precision. We want him to only cut the bad parts, the tumors that need to be cut out. We don't want him to come in and be like, oh, you got a little speck on your arm. Let's just off goes the whole arm. We don't want that. And yet that's what we do when we judge others. We say that that speck, that blemish is actually the whole person. The whole thing needs to go. Now, the machete is not the most helpful tool for the job. The scalpel is. And so we must not neglect the use of the scalpel. But make no mistake, while we are not supposed to wrongly judge others, 
We have to do this scalpel judging process with grace and discernment, which is why we have to read all these verses together, right? Because our culture, what is our culture like? What is the favorite verse that even non-church people love to quote? Judge not, bro. You know, like they add bro to it every time. I don't know why. But that's the verse they like to quote. And it's out of context when we look at the whole package here of what Jesus is saying, because the Bible is crystal clear on the fact that we have to exercise righteous judgment, not with the machete, but with the scalpel, in order to love one another just as God loves us. Yes, we are certainly not to judge with a self-righteous, legalistic, hypercritical spirit. Right? We said a second ago, cancerous tumor. What do you need if you have a cancerous tumor? Not some jerk for Jesus swinging a huge sword at your arm trying to just amputate limbs. You need a surgeon whose precision can cut the tumor out without cutting you into bits and pieces, without cutting you out. And if that's going to happen, you need someone who has removed the log from their eyes so that they can see clearly enough to go to work with that little scalpel and start removing the parts that aren't you out of you so you can be healthy. That's what sin is, right? Is, is my sin my identity? No, thank, all right, hold on. We got more problems than I thought. Is your sin your identity? No, your sin is an enemy of your identity. It's not the real you. And so that's what we're after, killing the sin, not the sinner, right? But in order for this to happen, the surgeon must recognize the difference between the tumor and the person. Because if they don't, they're gonna start treating the person and the tumor as the same thing, which is only going to harm and not help. It is only keeping our eyes upon the gospel of grace that we can, as one pastor put it, use the law of God as a mirror instead of a window, which is the title of our sermon today, okay? We must use the law of God as a mirror instead of a window that we look through to self-righteously criticize others to make ourselves feel bolstered and prideful and built up. However, with God's law functioning as a mirror, in our hands, and only then can we remove the log of legalism from our eyes in order to lovingly remove the tumors we see in each other. And, and this is important, ask them to remove the tumors they see in us, because we all have them. We all do. Real quickly here, and we'll close practical application here, okay? One, take steps to foster, to develop a bias of charity, okay? How do you do that? talked about it a little bit, you look for an alternative explanation, and when you can't find it, when you can't find it, what do you got to do? Let it go. I'm not going to sing it, right? But you got to let it go, okay? You got to assume, you know, you know I, I don't know the whole picture, let go. But if you can't let it go, what do you got to do? You got to look for the cross-examination there, okay? And how do you do that? You go to the person. You do it now, not six months from now, okay? Because if your brother, as Jesus says, if your brother has something against you, and I would even flip that because I think the inverse is true. If you've got something against them, vice versa, if there's conflict, you leave your gift at the altar, you go to them and you be reconciled before what happens. Before your heart has convinced you that they are bad, that they are worthy of judgment and condemnation. You have to do this quickly before the attitude of bitterness sets in. Number two, before you go to confront someone about something that you believe is a perpetual problem, okay, you need to pray about it. 
I'm not just talking one time. How about we just, let's just agree on this. I have a chapter and verse for this, but how about 50? Can we start there? Pray for them 50 times. Okay, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you get the idea? Pray for them. Don't just, all right, get in my car. I'm going to talk to them. Oh, Lord, help this person. Okay, I'm going to get them. Don't do that. Pray about it. And not just for them, pray asking God to show you where you might be biased, where you might not have all the information where you might be seeing things without spiritual 2020 vision. Third, if someone comes to you with an uncharitable narrative, what are you supposed to do? Shut it down and shut it down hard. Don't give them an ear to listen. Don't say, oh, tell me more so I can pray for you better. Don't do that, right? Prayer requests, what do those often become? Gossip opportunities, really what they often are, okay? Matthew 18 is our is our process. If you've got a problem, because here's the thing that's going to happen. You're going to have assumptions that flood your heart and flood your mind on a regular basis when it comes to family members. Happens all the time in a household. Why wouldn't it happen in a church household? Right? It's going to happen. And you have not sinned yet when those assumptions come. It's like lust. Okay? Just because, as Martin Luther says, just because there's birds flying around your head doesn't mean you've given in to sin. You have something to repent of. It's only when you allow them to nest in your head, in your hair, and make themselves at home. That's where it's sin. Okay, so the assumptions are not sin, but what you do with those assumptions is what determines whether or not you're sinning in this. So when someone comes to you with an uncharitable narrative, whether it's a person or your own heart, you shut it down. And as we said before, you go to the person without leading, uh, attacking questions. You go to actually find the truth in a charitable, gracious way. Four, ask people to examine you and invite them to be honest with how they think you're doing in this area. And mean it when you ask. Don't say, hey, how do you think I'm doing? Pretty good? All right, sweet. You want to go get lunch? (laughs) Don't. Embrace awkward silences. And don't just ask the people that you think are going to give you the answers you want. Ask people who you struggle with. Ask numerous people. The reality is we all have serious and major blind spots when it comes to this, especially with certain people and especially with certain personality types. And last time I checked, is a personality type a sin? Not necessarily. It's not. We're all different, okay? We're just, we are. Maybe that personality type is just not your cup of tea, okay? And that's, that's gonna happen. Definitely is gonna happen. But you need to learn to make it your cup of tea despite your personality difference that factors into the equation, right? It's not just their personality is hard for you to deal with. Maybe your personality is hard to deal with. Maybe my personality is hard to do. And so we all have to work on the personality differences by trying to love and appreciate one another. Church, this is the love that we are called to. Not legalistic judgment that self-righteously hacks away at people instead of problems. We must then have an attitude of grace that remembers the God of grace who gave up everything in order to save us. May I remind you of how he did this? 2,000 years ago, give or take, he came and people judged him. And did they judge him rightly? No, not even close. They called him of the devil. They said he was a liar. They called him a lunatic. They said he was possessed. And yet he came anyways and he endured being wrongly judged by people who were actually hypocrites who saw him as an unhelpful threat, 
They saw him as an enemy instead of an ally who was there to harm them when the truth was he was there to help them. And so in their rage, they pulled out their sword and they thrust it into his side as he laid there covered in blood upon a cross, taking the judgment that you and I deserve. And because he did this, we must not judge one another with unrighteous judgment. Instead, we must extend to each other the marvelous grace of God that he has given us. We must teach our hearts to always sing, as we're going to in a moment, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. May this be the song of our hearts as individuals and collectively as a church for the sake of God, his glory, and the proclamation of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today's sermon was not a machete upon your people, but that it was the surgeon's knife. Father, help no one here to take this as a sniping. Help us all to realize that this problem is systemic because it's in all of us, myself included. So Father, I ask that you would continue to convict myself in the areas where I fall short in this. And then out of that, Lord, I ask that as a church, we would also follow the same suit. Help us to be gracious. Help us to be charitable. Father, the evil one, Satan wants to divide us. He wants us to look for, look for the bad. He wants us to live in the, in the darkness and in the shadows and see each other as enemies instead of allies. The truth is we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that comes only by your marvelous grace. And so we long for the day, Lord, when all of this will be behind us. It'll all be there, just gone in the past. So help us to keep our eyes on that day and recognize that whatever conflicts we may have, however small or however large, we're not even going to remember these in eternity. For we will be so focused upon your glory and your love for us and our love for one another. Help us to see not the sin in the sinners that surround us. Help us to see the saints whom you love, whom you died and shed your blood for. And help us never to condemn one another. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.